what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. About ready to start a new quilt for a friend. And I started doing a acrylics landscape course through Skillshare. And so painting is pretty important to me at the moment. And then the thing that I would really like to focus on this summer is just getting out with my sketchbook, drive to different towns and just do sketches, draw buildings and things. That's my husband, Sean. Sean is also the main force behind Yellow House Media. Sure, it's technically our company, but I really only do a bit of consulting and some odd jobs around websites in Canva. Now that he's been running the company for almost three years, he's got some things figured out. The most important thing he's figured out is how to spend as little time as possible working. Most weeks, he puts in about 25 hours. Much of the rest of the time, he's working on projects. A quilt, an art class, some landscaping. After the episode on Do What You Love ideology, I was asked about exploring the value of hobbies. How do you carve out space to do things you love but don't want to get paid for? Or how do you decide when it's time to get paid for something that's just a hobby? I could think of no one better to talk to about this topic than Sean. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is Extra Context, short bonus episodes of What Works that explore the historical, sociological, and philosophical context of the ideas we often take for granted. In this episode, I'm going to fade into the background a bit. There is some fascinating history and theory around leisure, late-stage capitalism, and our relationships to paid work. But I want to give Sean some space to share his stories and thought process. Sean's perspective on work time, leisure time, and his identity as an artist was shaped by some profound childhood experiences. In some way or another, quilting has always been in my life. My grandmother was a really important person in my life, and she quilted for, you know, constantly. It had to be utilitarian. It was pretty, but not so pretty. (laughs) It was always like, oh, I've got these scraps around. I have to do something with them. She brought me on quilting with her really young, where she would just have me sit with her. And it was so funny because my stitches were so bad. Leisure and downtime was almost always filled with something. You know, when people would get together, it was to make jam or to quilts. Gatherings were about crafts and stocking up type of thing. And I would say that I have certainly picked up on that and not in like a a survivalist paranoia type of way, but strictly like I have so many memories of the pleasure of gathering together to take care of something as a family, you know, to can a bunch of cherries, to go pick cherries. You know, these are the things that we did. We were way more likely to go out and pick our own fruit at a local orchard than to ever buy it. And my grandma would say, what do you want for desserts? Go down into the pantry and find something, you know, and literally walking into a room where there was a year's worth of canned goods that she had made herself on the shelf. 
Mormons are pilgrims. Uh, this is the narrative they tell themselves. Mormons have a real kind of homesteader vibe to them. A lot of like self-sufficiency, you know, stocking your pantry, learning hand skills. Independence is a big thing that, that's pretty important culturally. And I always put this caveat into when I talk about Mormon culture. I am not a Mormon, and so my Mormon culture experience is my family culture, and so I can't speak to a Mormon culture at large. I can only speak to my family's culture, which is sometimes different. Sean learned all sorts of things growing up between Utah and Montana that I didn't learn in the suburbs of Pennsylvania, even if seeing a horse and buggy while visiting my own grandparents wasn't very remarkable. More than the individual skills, I think Sean learned that all time was equally good for paid work as it was for the work of making a home, connecting with family, and finding pleasure in craft. That's definitely not part of the suburban ethos I grew up in. And when Sean was about 13 years old, his family moved to rural interior Alaska. I lived in a village of 100. So you had to fly in from Bush Plain to a gravel airstrip, and it was on the bend in a river and tiny little place. All the houses were built up on stilts because every spring then the river would break up or the river would flood. There was a, a jade mine like five, ten miles out of town up in the foothills of the Brooks Range. There was a road that went up there, and there were some trucks in town, so people did actually drive up there in the summertime. But in the wintertime, it was snowmobiles exclusively, and it was friggin' cold. It was above the Arctic Circle. There wasn't any running water, and so there was like a central spot where everyone would go to get water, and there were showers there, and everyone there, they were subsistence hunters and fishers, and there was no grocery store. There was no place that you could go and buy these things. If you wanted something that you didn't have, you made it. And it was a pleasure. People took pride in it. You know, your your mukluks or your parkas or your nets for fishing or your whatever. These were things that you made yourself. And, and it wasn't a big deal. It was just what you did. And with a combination of my own family's posture on these things and my experience in Alaska, I think I've really firsthand, like, that's, that's who I am. Sean's stepdad was one of two teachers in the village. His family were the few white folks living among the Inupiaq villagers. I would say with relative confidence that the majority of people who lived there would still invite me in. But we were out, we were outsiders. That was known, you know, whether we were there, we weren't there for the long term. So, you know, there, there are a lot of ways that we, we never really fill into a subsistence hunting and fishing lifestyle, you know. But that doesn't mean when the end of the school day came, like I didn't go, you know, go out fishing with my friends. The only meat we ate was caribou and moose. And there was a time in my life if I ever had to look at caribou or moose ever again, I would just scream, you know. Like we also said, do we have enough meat for this year? And we made sure that we did. And we did it with other people in the village, like they did it with each other. And so like my little buddies and I, we'd go fishing and <laughs> we'd catch way too many fish. And then we'd take a garbage bag because that's all we had to carry stuff in. We'd take a garbage bag. We'd go around to all the little old elders, the the Annas, as they say up there. And we say like, Anna, Anna May, or just like, do you want some fish? And she, they're like, Ugh, again. <laughs> And, sh and the only way that they'd take them from us is if we'd clean them first. So we always did that. 
Now, Sean is quick to point out that there's nothing romantic about this lifestyle. It was hard living, but it was also very full, full of work, full of family, and full of curiosity and creativity. But I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. I had some snowshoes. They're long snowshoes, you know, they're for like deep snow. So I'd go out and I had a rifle and I'd shoot ptarmigan and rabbits and things. And so to a little augment what we were eating. Ptarmigan tastes terrible, by the way. There's nothing to them. Mostly I was just, I would just get out because I didn't really have anyone my age. So I spent a lot of time alone, but I, there was like some fresh snow and it was just beautiful. And so I went out and I was just snowshoeing along, came across someone else's snowshoe tracks. And so, you know, I know everybody. So uh, I fell in behind them looking for, to see who it was. And it was Data Joseph and Data, as they say up there, is like old man or grandpa or whatever. And um, Joseph spoke almost no English, and I spoke almost no Anupiak. But we spent an afternoon together, and he was, I think you call it girding trees, where you, you cut the bark around the base of a tree and kill it. And then you wait like a year or whatever, and then you have dry wood. And so what you do is you cut down a dead tree and process a dead tree so the wood is dry. Because doing that with green wood is miserable, and you have to move it around and stack it and dry it and all these kinds of things. But yeah, I mean, he was just, and he had an axe, and I was the young guy, and he's made me do all the work. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we spent an afternoon together. It was it was fabulous. It was. I mean, he was just this little old Nupiak, and it was great. Sean would never pretend to have assimilated into indigenous Alaskan life. As he said, he was an outsider there for a relatively brief time. Yet, he learned a lot about resisting the assumptions of contemporary American life. I was talking to a client about you know, valuing ourselves over our our position and our career. Like you can't respect yourself if you aren't moving upward in the corporate ladder type of deal and no one else is going to respect you. In Kobuk, the most respected people in the village had never had a job, had never had a bank account, and were never going to have a bank account. They might have some money somewhere <laughs> for who knows why. There were people in the town who had never had a job and were never going to have a job had never invested, didn't have life insurance, didn't, et cetera, et cetera. And they were the most respected people there. My impression is, is that no one had, almost no one had jobs. So it was like a hundred people and maybe, maybe five of them had a job because there'd be like, you know, the city offices or the post office or the janitor at the, at the elementary school or the cook at the elementary school. There were a few of them, but it was minimal. And so what did people do with their time? They took care of shit. Meaning, in the right time of the season, you were getting caribou and moose. And in the, the other time of the year, you were fishing. Or rather, they were fishing year-round. You know, there were fish traps they put under the ice. They had what they called fish camps. So, like, almost everyone had or shared an additional spot. So, they'd go upriver that they'd have these special, specific camps that they'd go and stay at for a specific amount of time and fish. And then they'd set up these fish and smoke them for long-term preservation. And so that was part of the tradition as well. You know, and they, you know, you take a riverboat up and you have your rifle and you shoot beavers and things, you know, make your trim on your parka with some beaver. So, you know, making sure your house wasn't falling apart. And I'm not gonna say it was idyllic, don't get me wrong. I mean, there was, it was long, long, hard, dark winters and there were suicides and there were, you know, 
alcohol issues. And, but um, what did people do? They spent a lot of time with each other. And there was a lot of time sitting around playing cards. I mean, there were, you know, village-wide cribbage tournaments. <laughs> Sean has been clear from the beginning. His business was not going to be his life. It would be part of the task of taking care of shit, but it wouldn't be his identity. The business doesn't hold some hallowed place in his heart or on his calendar. He puts his all into the four or five hours he works per day, and then he puts his all into creative experiments, house projects, and just life, generally speaking. I'm a creative, and I'm an artist, you know, and if that's fiber art or drawing or painting or, you know, playing my guitar or whatever it is, that's what I am. And I, and I do believe that's, in some capacity, that's what I'll, I will always be. The art and the creativity will never go away. The work, the job is transient. What I do now is only temporary. I don't know how long that's going to be. I mean, it could be another 20 years, you know? My employment, my work subsidizes my true identity, which is artist creative. I do view work, employment as subsistence. I don't view it as identity. It is the thing I do so I can have a place to live. I try my hardest to find a thing that isn't distasteful to me, right? And even better, something that I actually, on at least part of the time, really enjoy. But it is self-subsistence. And I think that that does differentiate my view towards work. I think that is a kind of a different view than a lot of people have. Subsistence is probably a strong word here. Subsistence is the act of maintaining or supporting oneself at a minimum level. Minimum, of course, is relative. But I don't want anyone to confuse the privileged way Sean and I live with people who work really long hours in bad conditions just to put food on the table. There are far too many people who have no choice but true subsistence. However, Sean doesn't spend much time, probably no time at all, if I'm being honest, thinking about how he or the company can make more money. He doesn't think about bringing on a bunch of new clients. He's happy with much less than what the company could provide. And he's happy to pay a few wonderful, talented people to work with him, trading a smaller profit margin for heaps of time. In the past, I've experimented with really compartmentalizing things and saying like, you know, this half of the day is dedicated to this and this half of the day is dedicated to this and this day I do this. And and in my experience, for me personally, that means that the things that I really want to do always get pushed back and become secondary. I never get around to them. Or by the time that I do, I'm too tired or fatigued to have any interest in it. And also my creativity strikes at very unpredictable times. Like it's like I can set aside a time to say I'm going to do a thing. And yeah, I can sit down and probably get things going. So what I have done instead is like in the room that I am in now is my, I guess what you'd call my studio. And it is my office as well. So I have a desk that is almost exclusively work, almost exclusively Yellow House Media and it's where my computer is. And then in reaching distance from me is my work table where I basically do everything else. 
And if you were to walk into my room, you would see uh, a sketchbook out, whatever thing that I'm actually working on at the time. And then so instead what I do is I do creative output in kind of short spurts. Like I'll do 15 minutes here and there. Um, I have a sketchbook at my desk with me that if I'm like waiting for something to download or, I, you know, whatever, like I will do some sketching. And I used to try to like establish these boundaries and I've, and boundaries exist, but they exist elsewhere. They don't exist in this way. No, I have it out front ready to go at all times. And then of course a lot, and like I was saying, like at the couch, you see me, a lot of my, my sewing happens in the downtime when we're watching TV after dinner, when we're sitting around having family time, it's when I'm working with my hands additionally. I can't wait for time to happen to do the things that I actually want to be doing. I have landed on just making it all the time. It is always wrapped up in what I do. And of course, on the, like, on the weekends, I go in a little deeper, that kind of thing. I have made room for it in every moment of my life. It is there. I didn't want to end this conversation without asking Sean why he doesn't work on an art business. I do harbor quiet aspirations about actually turning it into something that I can subsist off of. And I think that that would be wonderful. I just don't know how to go about that, you know? Whoa, 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 whoa. But you do know how to go about that. Do I? I could probably, fi- I, I, what am I talking about? I could probably, fi- I know I could figure it out. But you also have access to an incredible wealth of resources. Well, when I say I could figure it out, that's what I mean. I have you, I have, you know, I have so many people that this is what they do, right? right. <laughs> And, and and so many people that not only this is what they do, they would share it with me <laughs> and would be so psyched to help me pre- achieve that. So. so why don't you then? I mean, I think that that's one of the big questions that I'm interested in with this episode is like, yeah, why do we decide to either start making something financial or to refuse to make it financial? And I feel like with your visual art specifically, you have thought about how to turn that into a business. Mm -hmm. You do have aspirations Mm -hmm. of being a working artist. Mm -hmm. What is stopping you right now? Or what is going into the thought process behind not setting up a shop and calling it a side hustle? I talk about subsistence work and, you know, the uh, the idyllic, this person never had a job and blah, 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 as if I am above and separate from the pressures that our society puts on people. I, I definitely have that internal voice that will criticize me if I do something that doesn't have value, that I, that for, for whatever reason, is of less value and it's not worth doing. There are some family voices that say, you know, art isn't worth your time. And I, and I remember at the very moment where I stopped drawing, it was in the fourth grade, a teacher teased me and I stopped. And up, up to that point, it was all that I did. Like it was like a big part of my, like daily, I just drew, right? And so I am not, I am not uh, immune to those pressures those voices that our society says that there's a thing that you do that is worth doing and there are other things that are not. So I'm not sure if I really got an answer to that question, but I appreciate his honesty, of course. We'll keep working on that. 
Now let's end on a more energetic note. I don't think we need to justify the things we do for pleasure or self-expression that don't pay us. I don't think we need to say meditate because it makes us more productive or go running because it helps us get in the right headspace for work. But I can see how Sean approaches his art and his business in similar ways. One doesn't serve the needs of the other, but they're connected in craft and process. I like slow craft. Process is very important to me. When I set out to uh, make a piece, whether or not that's a drawing or a painting or a performance or whatever it happens to be, when I set out to do something, the process is significantly important to me. And one of the reasons I like to work in arts and crafts is it's so tactile. And I've realized mm -hmm. that that's really important to me. A, a big part of me is satisfied by the physical, the tactile. And the more I can do to engage with it on in that way, the better. Sean's experience isn't advice. He didn't share his process as a blueprint for you to create yours. There are plenty of parts of how Sean works that just aren't logistically feasible for most people. But my hope is that hearing how someone else explores the relationship between paid work and every other valuable kind of way to spend one's time will encourage you to rethink some of your own assumptions. Next week, we'll continue the Context Clues series with a deep dive on personal branding. <laughs>